Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. The following articles are from the March 2023 Opera News and will begin with Cameo Appearances by F. Paul Driscoll. On page 16 of this month's issue, David J. Baker's essay, Interrupted Melody, examines one of opera's big impact small roles, the Italian singer Inder Rosencavalier. The character sings just one brilliant aria, Di Rigori Armato, but the chance to belt out a few choice high notes and go home before Act One is over has proven irresistible to a number of first-rank tenors in the opera house and on recording. When the Met presented the U.S. premiere of Der Rosenkavalier, the company's first Italian singer was Karl Jorn, a Latvian-born German tenor whose Met roles included Tannhäuser, Lohengrin, Sigmund, Parsifal, and Walter von Stolzing. The premiere of the Met's next new production, the long-serving Nathaniel Merrill staging designed by Robert O'Hearn, featured the nonpareil Nikolai Geta singing Di Rigori Armato. The most memorable of Geta's successors in the Merrill Rosen Cavalier was easily Luciano Pavarotti, who sang the role under the batons of James Levine, 1976 and 82, and Carlos Kleiber, 1990. The Met premiere of its current staging by Robert Carson fielded an elegant Caruso-esque Italian singer from Matthew Polanzani. The solo madrigal singer in Puccini's Manon Lescaux has attracted an impressive number of star singers on recording, including Cecilia Bartoli for Levine, 1993, Bridget Fassbender for Giuseppe Sinopoli, 1983, and Fiorenza Cosotto, for Tullio Serafin, 1957. For more than 50 years, the most consistently starry cameo role at the Met has been the Duchess de Krakenthorpe in La Fille du Régiment, whose aristocratic, non-singing shoes have been filled by artists from Kiri Tekenawa and Liubia Wellich to Marion Selds, Jane White, Beatrice Arthur, and Kathleen Turner. And now sound bites by F. Paul Driscoll. Jaina McIntyre, a soprano from Santa Barbara, sings Daphne this month at Carnegie Hall. Jaina McIntyre gave a career-altering performance in July 2022, when she dazzled barred summerscape audiences as Aminta in Richard Strauss's Schweigsame Frau. Under the lively leadership of conductor Leon Botstein, McIntyre made neat work of Aminta's treacherously high music, winning praise from the Financial Times' George Loomis for her aplomb in negotiating the stratospheric uncut score. McIntyre says that when she first saw the Schweigsame Frau score, I thought everyone had made a mistake, and I was actually being considered for the smaller soprano role, to be quite honest. Aminta is insanity, truly. It's like three soprano roles in one. But it was a dream role I didn't know I had. It is hilarious and has a true depth of character. 
bringing this piece to light and unpacking the details of its history were amazing. And of course, Maestro Botstein brought a lot of his own knowledge and writing on Frau librettist Stefan Schweig to the process, which made our work in rehearsal even more intense. This month, McIntyre collaborates again with Botstein and the American Symphony Orchestra, which he takes on the title role in a Carnegie Hall concert of Strauss's Daphne. Daphne is totally different from Aminta. Daphne is pure goodness and innocence. She has deep feelings and connections, but when she speaks, she's not guarded. There are no double meanings to what she says. I am particularly attached to Daphne's opening scene and to the scene when Lukipos dies right before the transformation. When she says, O bleib, gulaib tag, please stay, O beautiful daylight, that really shows her spirit as a nymph, her innocence and purity and lack of guile. The transformation scene is wonderful, but it is so much richer if you know how Daphne's story begins. A graduate of UCLA and Manhattan School of Music, McIntyre will follow her ASO Daphne with a May run as Cinderella in Into the Woods for Tulsa Opera. I was a young artist in Tulsa, so I am looking forward to returning there. Cinderella is my first Sondheim role. It's weird to be carrying around scores for Strauss and Sondheim at the same time. They are at opposite ends of the spectrum. But I enjoy switching gears. And now Operpedia Waterways. Henry Stewart sails across the seas of opera history. Rocky Settings. Britain's Peter Grimes is famous for its sea interludes. Several orchestral scene changers often performed as a suite, that evoke the work's coastal setting. It's a similar milieu to Ethel Smith's Wreckers, set in a Cornish village whose economy depends upon the residents looting ships lured to crash on its rocky coast. Louisa Muller's production for Houston last year culminated in a coup de théâtre, Opera News reported. The main characters, chained in a cave, awaited their death sentence by drowning as bursts of sea spray, made to glitter under the lighting, entered the cave's mouth. Current Affairs Composers seem to have an affinity for rivers. Johann Strauss paid tribute to the dancing flow of the Blue Danube in his waltz, while Smetana's interpretation of the Viltova or Moldau remains more popular than his several operas. Wagner evokes the Rhine with an undulating E-flat major in the Vorspiel to Rheingold, while Puccini frequently conjures up the churning Seine in his Tabarro orchestrations. My favorite is Grofe's Hudson River Suite, which is like a majestic trip on the Metro North drawn in sound. Lost at Sea Maria Callas died from a heart attack in Paris in 1977. She was cremated, her ashes were placed in a columbarium in Père Lachaise, and someone tried to steal them. So her friends and family removed the remains, flew them to Athens, and took them out on a torpedo boat from Piraeus to scatter them in the Aegean, honoring the last wish of the legendary soprano. 
She'd said that she wanted to be lost in the sea, Pate reports. Come fly with me. Opera's most famous seaman is a certain Dutchman cursed by Satan to sail portlessly until redeemed by the love of a faithful woman. This is the myth-inspired plot of Wagner's Fligenda Hollander, whose tragic hero does a lot more sailing than flying, at least until Senta's watery, sacrificial suicide takes him up to heaven. The Flying Dutchman is actually the name of his ship. George London was the modern era's quintessential Dutchman, captured in 1960 for an RCA Victor release, as well as in live recordings from Bayreuth and the Met in the 50s and 60s. Queen Overboard The Brigands Festival is held every summer in that Austrian city, featuring operas on its famous floating stage on Lake Constance, which borders three countries. In 2013, a production of Die Zoberfloat carried performers on a boat which capsized during one August performance, sending singers into the water, including Catherine Lewick, the show's Queen of the Night. My Bergen's contract stated I must not be afraid of heights and be physically fit, she later tweeted, but nothing about swimming. On Recording Thomas Allen and Sarah Walker collaborated on a recital in 1985 called The Sea, a collection of more than 20 songs by more than a dozen composers, from Haydn to Ives, grouped into six chapters exploring the titular theme. Most of the pieces in this ingeniously planned recital are chosen for a purpose and placed with precision, according to Gramophone's review, such as the jovial midpoint intermezzo of the program, The Mermaid, a traditional tune arranged by the pianist Roger Vignoles, which offers the rare opportunity to hear Alan playfully inject a sound effectsy sploosh. Tragedy. Soprano Zeneda Georgievskaya was just three years into a starry career in Germany when she took her own life. She was a tender young creature with dreamy eyes, Frida Leiter writes in her memoir. She was always shrouded in melancholy, and at rehearsals was very quiet and reserved, and was not entirely surprised by her tragic death. Legend has it, Georgiskaya was in love with another soprano who did not return her affection, and in Andermatt, Switzerland in 1925, she took poison threw herself into the Rus River and drowned. Berlin lost in her a most interesting and unusual singer, Leiter adds. No one who heard her first Genufa at the Berlin premiere in 1924 will ever forget it. Death by Water Drowning is not an uncommon way for opera characters to die. According to an analysis of the 100 most commonly performed operas by the blog Pamina's Opera, it accounts for 8% of female deaths and 5% of male. But there's a gender imbalance. It's more common for men to be drowned by external forces, e.g. Hagen by the Rhine Maidens, while women, e.g. Katya Kabanova or 
the queen of spades is Lisa, more often drown themselves. Only one man, Peter Grimes, commits a watery suicide. Lee's Davidson was riveting in Lisa's suicide scene at the Met in 2019. On Deck Willa Cather's short story, The Diamond Mine, reprinted in Youth and the Bright Medusa, opens on an ocean liner where star soprano Chrisita Garnett is holding court. I first became aware that Garnett was on board when I saw young men with cameras going up to the boat deck. In that exposed spot, she was good-naturedly posing for them. She was too much an American not to believe in publicity. All advertising was good. If it was good for breakfast foods, it was good for prima donna. Siren Songs The Lorelei is an echo-producing rock on the Rhine, as well as the lovelorn woman who threw herself from it and was reborn as a supernatural ship-destroying siren. The legend was popularized by Heinrich Heine's 1824 poem, De Lorelei, later set by numerous composers such as Liszt and Schumann. Catalani's 1890 opera Lorelei also adapts this tale, joining rich orchestrations with bel canto lightness, Verdian and Wagnerian grandiosity, and a forward-looking dash of verismo humanity, according to Opera News. And now Spotlight by Joe Cadigan. Words of the Earth. John Luther Adams's Night opens this month at Lyric Opera of Chicago. John Luther Adams maps vast landscapes in his music. Audiences are invited to inhabit sonic tundras where arctic winds and undulating auroras envelop the listener in the form of droning strings and tinkling percussion. His orchestral Become Trilogy has emerged as a contemporary classic with its immersive evocations of ocean, river, and desert. The erstwhile Alaskan spoke with opera news from his current residence, what he half-jokingly describes as an undisclosed location in the Chihuahuan Desert in New Mexico. Opera News Your new work, Night, has its premiere at Lyric Opera of Chicago this month as part of the Triple Bill Proximity. Did you conceive the work as an opera? John Luther Adams No, I thought of it as a kind of tableau vivant, like a frieze or a diorama. It's a setting of a late poem by my dear friend John Haynes. It's written in the voice of the Cumaean Sibyl, the prophet who lives in a cave and writes her prophecies on leaves. Of course, the wind comes along and blows the leaves, and that makes it even harder for us to understand what she's trying to tell us. But it's pretty clear that the news ain't good. O.N. Would you consider it a spiritual work? Many of your pieces have liturgical titles. For example, Canticles of the Holy Wind. J.L.A. I might use a different word, but yeah, I think it's a spiritual impulse. Music is not what I do. Music is how I understand the world. It's my way of trying to navigate this chaotic, turbulent culture that we inhabit these days. My life's work is grounded in my faith, 
and my faith is just not in the church. It's in the deeper, older narrative of four and a half billion years of earth. My words of devotion are the words of the earth. Recently, I did a piece for Paul Hillier's Theater of Voices called A Brief Descent into Deep Time. They sing down through the geologic layers of the Grand Canyon, the names of the rocks, their colors, their ages. My next choral piece, which will premiere almost immediately after night, is called Vespers of the Blessed Earth. The penultimate Vesper is Litanies of the Sixth's Extinction. And the text is the Latin names, the scientific binomials for critically endangered plants, fish, reptiles, amphibians, birds, and mammals, ending with, yes, Homo sapiens. I hope that, in the course of practicing my devotion to my art and asking new questions, maybe I find something that has enough space in it for you to walk around and be confused and experience wonder. O.N. That space has become very literal in your more recent music. J.L.A. In my earlier works, it was more of a metaphor. Now it is a fundamental compositional element for me. The physical space in which the music is performed is as important as the harmonies, the instrumentation, the text. The South Dakota Symphony Orchestra recently premiered An Atlas of Deep Time. That piece has six different instrumental choirs, so the space is just saturated with sound as the choirs ebb and flow, rise and fall, appear and disappear. For the last decade, beginning with Inuksuit for a massed percussion, I've been making music for performance and experience outdoors. It's all about music as a means of discovery, music as an invitation to slow down, to stay put, and to listen to where we are, wherever that may be. Owen, you're often cast as an environmentalist composer. Is that a fair label? JLA, much of my music is rooted in what we so glibly refer to as nature, this stupid Western conceit that we're somehow apart from nature. We are inseparably a part of nature. We don't create anything. As awesome and confounding as human intelligence is, it comes from out there, from underneath our feet, from the air we breathe, from the bird flitting around. For me, spoken and sung language is like our form of birdsong. It is a kind of human utterance that is magical. Sure, I get called a political artist. I get called an activist. I get taken to task for being an ideological composer. Political art for me usually fails as art and as politics. If you don't put the art first, then all your good intentions mean absolutely nothing. It's just blah 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 unless the art touches you, moves you, and takes you somewhere. It's this idea of imagining how the world really is, in spite of all our ideas about it and our dramas about ourselves. To hell with that. How is the world right now? It's still incredibly beautiful and so filled with mysteries. There are so many questions that we haven't even learned to ask. 
So my music is an ideal, I suppose, of the world as it really is, and of human culture as it might be. And that is a culture that I hope your generation and subsequent generations will be able to bring about, that I will never live to inhabit. Joe Cadigan is a musicologist and postdoctoral fellow at New Europe College in Bucharest, Romania. And now spotlight by David J. Baker. Interrupted Melody. The Italian singer's aria in Der Rosenkavalier. No finer Italian aria exists in all of German opera. In a scene of frantic activity late in Act I of Der Rosenkavalier, an anonymous male character emerges from the crowd around the Marshall Inn and, somewhat improbably, launches into an ardent solo in Italian. Neither he nor his song seems to have much to do with the opera's main business. The change of language and musical style might suggest that Strauss felt his audience needed a break at this point, some melodic comfort amid the dissonant chaos. Audiences seem to welcome the diversion. Over the century-long life of this opera, the aria has undergone an important evolution. At the pre-war Metropolitan Opera, it was sung mostly by relative unknowns. Alfio Tedesco from 1927 to 35, Nicholas Massu from 1937 to 40. But later, it was sung by stars, often actual Italian tenors, such as Giuseppe Di Stefano in 1949 and Luciano Pavarotti starting in 1976, a trend also notable on major recordings of the complete opera. In dramatic terms, however, its text seems irrelevant. It's a generic hymn to the irresistible force of love, in language over-familiar from Baroque Italian librettos. Its opening line, Di rigori armato il seno, translates as, My breast armed with rigor, and continues in its entirety, I rebelled against love, but in one glance was conquered on beholding two lovely lights. Ah, no heart of ice can long resist the flame of those rays. Musicological sleuths found the source of the words. Strauss lifted them from an aria composed by Lully for the ballet in a production of Moliere's Bourgeois Gentilhomme in 1670. The tune is Strauss's own, built on rising arcs and sustained diminuendos, a graceful, billowing, melodic shape that gives the tenor voice ample opportunities to expand and shine. Musically, the aria acquires an urgency, a romantic pulse and reach that seem to push against the Baroque framework. It's a late romantic treatment of early bel canto form, which drives the florid line to repeated climaxes hinting at Verismo aria style, a pastiche that might be at home in the Di Quanyi ballroom in Act One of Giordano's Andrea Chenier, 1898. The aria is not entirely out of place in the Marshallin's busy boudoir, either. 18th century Vienna was one of the outposts of Italian opera, as the presence there of Metastasio, Mozart, and De Ponte, for example, clearly shows. 
And the librettist plays here with some of the privilege and ostentation of Habsburg Vienna's wealthiest nobility. Especially a habit of aping the royalist institution of the levee, rising in the morning, in which a monarch received courtiers and admirers conducting business as he was being dressed for the day. In her levee, Marie Therese does likewise. We'll continue this article next time. Thank you for joining us for Opera News. My name is Keith. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.